Have you ever looked out on the world and just thought, what a mess? I wish somebody would do something. I wish someone would fix this thing. And then we see that, you know, yeah, we can look at the mess, but we can also be honest and look at our own lives and say, you know, we ha- I have it pretty good. And we don't know where that line kind of falls between should I be upset at the injustices of the world or should I be thankful at how good my life actually is. And then you maybe run into somebody or, or maybe you are one of those people that you meet someone that has truly been oppressed by evil in this world and you realize like, whoa, wait a minute. You know, my, my little problems don't seem so big anymore. Because in this world, we're all going to experience the brokenness of this world. It's going to land on everybody. Nobody's exempt. Everybody has some kind of issues they're dealing with. And, you know, you, you've heard me say before, but there, there are three types of people in this world. Okay, those who are in difficulty, those who are coming out of difficulty, and those who are going into difficulty. That's, that's life. But there does seem to be, sometimes, there's the normal level of kind of difficulty, and this is just what life is, and we all have to carry it. And then it just seems there are moments, seasons, that it seems like everything just gets amped up, and you are acutely aware of, of, of evil, of oppression, of darkness, of suffering, and, and it just seems like it won't end. And it's just, and, and maybe even landed on you, or you see somebody that it landed on, and you think, my goodness, God, give them a break. You know, give them, give them hope, help them through this. This is bad. And we sometimes don't really have an answer. You know, we, we know we pray for him, or even in our own lives, we're like, what is going on? And, you know, one example is Job. I mean, all of a sudden, everything falls apart. And as far as he knows, for no good reason. Now, we have in the book, of course, the heavenly discourse where Satan is challenging God and, you know, all of this is going on. But, you know, Job didn't have that. He didn't have that information at the beginning of this. He just knew he just had the worst day of his life. And now everything is bad. Everything has fallen apart. Even his health is gone. And nobody knows what to make of it. And today, if that's you, or, or you, you know somebody that kind of lives in that state, I have good news for you today because we are going to look today at Jesus being Lord of the oppressed. He is Lord of the oppressed. He sees you. He knows the suffering of this world. And in fact, we can say nobody, and I believe this, nobody suffered more greatly than Jesus Christ did. You see, that's why the scripture tells us we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tested in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. So he knows There is nothing new under the sun. There is nothing that is happening that Jesus did not experience firsthand. There is no heartache. There is is nothing that Jesus does not understand. He was tempted and tested in every way just as we are. And so he can sympathize with our weaknesses. 
He knows what it's like to live in a broken world. And so look with me in Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 17, and we're going to read the story about a woman who had been oppressed for a long time in life, and she finds freedom in Jesus. So verse 10, it says, Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. So not, you know, not an unexpected turn of events in this story at the Pharisees and, you know, leaders who don't understand compassion and don't understand things. But we do have some lessons, I think, that we can learn from this that will give all of us the language to better navigate this life. And let's just be honest, that's what a whole lot of Christian discipleship is, is learning how to navigate the minefield that is a broken world. Because listen, everything is broken. And if we don't start with that as our foundational understanding of this world, we're going to come to some wrong conclusions that are going to cause us a lot of strain, a lot of stress, a lot of problems, a lot of heartache, a lot of disappointment, and even a lot of disillusionment. If we don't understand just how broken this thing is, and we broke it, we don't get to point the finger at anybody else like they did it. You know, Adam and Eve. Trust me, Adam and Eve did a better job than any of us would have. Okay, I, I'm pretty sure if we were in the garden, God would have been like, hey, you can eat from every tree, and we're chomp, chomp, you know. We, we'd have been eaten before he even finished the sentence. And so everything is broken. The world, the people, the systems, the cultures, everything. Don't look at anything in this world and think, okay, they've got it together. That culture had it together. This culture was superior. Now, yes, some can be closer to God and some there, but it's still broken. There will still be issues. One of my favorite sayings for ministry is this. If people are involved, it's messed up. It saves a lot of heartache. And that's not being mean to people. And that, you know, I'm not excusing anything. It just... Create some room in your mind for, yeah, it's not going to work like it should. It's just not. And when we let go of that desire, we can let it be what it is, and then we can glorify God within it. We can live faithfully within it, understanding what it is God's calling us to do. And so, the brokenness that we live in will show itself in direct and in indirect ways. And it is a brokenness that just has to be managed 
Because it's not going to be cured until Jesus returns. Okay, it's not going away. Jesus didn't come to create utopia, heaven on earth. That's not what he's doing. In fact, what he says is there's going to be an end. There's going to be a new heaven, a new earth. That's when all that's going to happen. This world's going to stay broken. It's not going to be fixed. And so because of the sin of Genesis 3, the world is cursed. There's literally a curse on everything given by God. This wasn't Satan cursing the world and we just got to outmaneuver them and we can outsmart them and make things better. This is God saying the world is cursed. So what does that mean? It means relationships are cursed. It means the systems of this world are cursed. It means the cultures of this world are cursed. It means the people of this world are cursed. It means everything has a brokenness to it. That means it's broken at an existential level. Okay, existential, that means existence. Everything is tainted in some way. And that means if we're broken and we live in a broken system, that means we have no way to fix it ourselves. Brokenness plus brokenness equals what? More brokenness. Now, we can make different brokenness. We can rearrange it so it looks different and say, ooh, this is better. And yet it's not. And so when we look carefully at Genesis 3, which is what we're going to do here, we see that the world, that, that we ourselves and the world operates under this brokenness, okay? So listen, Genesis 3, 16 through 24, it's familiar, but I want to really pay attention. It says, to the woman, he said, this is after they've sinned, this is after they've been caught, they, this is the curses being handed down, okay? It says, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire, which is a desire for control, it's, it's not a good desire, shall be contrary to your husband. Relationships are affected, but he shall rule over you. Dominance, that is not godly either, okay? So this relationship is now broken. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, the ground, the earth. How things work, the very thing God created to produce life is now not going to work the way it's meant to work. It'll still work, just not as well, okay? It says, cursed is the ground to you, in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So now life is associated with what? Pain. Pain. This is God handing this down. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. What does that mean? That means struggle. Struggle just to get along. How many of you can say amen? He said this is now life. This is what life is going to be. This struggle just to make it is now a part of life, handed down by God. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. Death becomes a reality. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and 
partake also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. Think of that phrase. He drove them out. He had created paradise for them. And he says, no more. Get out. I am driving you from this existence into the difficult existence I have just decreed for you. I am forcing you into it. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, what is that? He's saying, you're not going to have a fix for this. I will guard the very thing that could, you know, I, I will put a guard there. I'm not allowing you back into this. This is your existence. So if we're going to describe the world we live in with complete honesty, we have to include every curse, every dark result, every truth from Genesis 3 and incorporate it into our understanding of reality. Now, how many times do we do that in a day? Oh, this is the world we live in. Okay, let's see. Relationships are cursed. This, <laughs> you know. So, listen, the foundation of our existence is described in this passage. Okay? An author, a Christian author named Christopher Walken put it this way. He says, one, God is alienated from us. And he is angry with us. He was angry with Adam and Eve for what they did. Now, when we think of anger, he didn't lose his temper and he didn't wipe it all out. But yes, there were punishments and curses handed down. God was not happy with them. He commanded them not to do something for their own good, for their own protection. They chose to do it. And God was angry with them. God's anger is real. Two, we are alienated from God and we flee from, from him. Adam and Eve hid themselves from God. This is the reality we have. Three, we are alienated from ourselves and we experience shame. What's the first thing they noticed? Hey, we're not clothed. We need to cover up. Something was wrong. They saw shame within themselves in that moment. Four, we are alienated from our bodies. We are alienated. Five, we are alienated from each other. You notice the blame game starts very quickly. Did you eat from the tree? Oh, I, yeah, she gave it to me. And you gave her to me, so really this is your fault. And she says, well, the serpent deceived me. Now, she's being partially honest there, but not fully honest. Because what's the real answer for them right there? Yes, we ate from the tree, and we did it because we want to be like you. Hmm. See, we think that you are holding something back from us, and we think we can have it. And so, yeah, we just decided to disregard your commandment and judge for ourselves what we want. Didn't work out for them. We are alienated from each other, and we are alienated from the rest of creation. And seven, creation is alienated from itself. The ground itself is cursed. You know, this right here, these seven things, these seven realities that we will live in from the day we are born till the day we die, they, they, they will not go away, okay? They can be managed, and in Christ, they can be mitigated to a degree, but it's not going away. This is why every attempt man has had to create utopia on earth always ends with violence, bloodshed, and horrible evil. Think about history. Anytime somebody stood up and said, I've got the answer and I know how to make the world perfect. And if you don't agree, I will kill you. And I'll kill enough people 
that we'll have utopia when it's over. History never looks kindly on those people, does it? Every time we look back, we're like, what happened there? How could, how could I get so messed up? How could I? This is why. Because the world we live in is broken. And we, when we start fighting against that brokenness with brokenness, it just leads to more brokenness. And it makes things worse. The world is so broken that it is impossible to create perfection with imperfection. Now, this is where this becomes personal. Self-improvement, apart from submission to God, just creates more problems. When we decide, I'm going to be a better me, but we only use our own resources to do it, what we're doing is creating a worse me. We're just giving in to some, some sinful urge somewhere, some brokenness. We're trying to patch it up, but we don't submit to God. We're just using another form of brokenness to patch over one, and it's just not going to work. And it always falls apart. The foundation, then, is absolutely critical to understanding, then, the work of Jesus. All this is set up to get to this woman who comes to Jesus because she is oppressed by the brokenness of this world. And sometimes that happens. Sometimes things just, look, with a broken world, things are going to be out of balance. Okay, harmony in this world is impossible apart from Jesus Christ. It's impossible. And so you're, we, we want... So many ways we want life to be fair, don't we? Can, is it possible for things to be fair in a broken system? No. That means some are going to suffer more than others. It's just going to happen. Some are going to get what they don't deserve. Some are going to get you know, what they do deserve or, or, or whatever. I mean, it's just things are not going to make sense. And when we try to force it to make sense, we just make things worse. And so what you have now is humanity has gone through, you know, thousands of years of brokenness. They're trying to make sense of it. You get to the time of Jesus, and what do you have? The Pharisees have said, hey, this legalistic righteousness, that will solve the problem. If we just have so many rules that we couldn't possibly make God mad, then that will solve the problems. What did it do? It's created more problems. And that brings us to the day of Jesus. Jesus shows up in the world, and what is his message? Is it try harder, do more, do better? No. Why? Because he knows everybody's broken. <laughs> he knows, like, whatever you try to do, it's not going to work. So he shows up and says what? Repent. Kingdom of God's at hand. Something new is beginning. Something completely different than what you've had before. Something that is not based in this world. Something that is not broken. Something that will never be broken. Something that takes care of the brokenness. That is starting and you need to be a part of it. And so he's teaching and what we find in his teaching is Jesus brings healing and wholeness. Jesus brings healing and wholeness. Now where is he when he starts this? He's in the synagogue. Okay, and the synagogue setting is crucial because in the synagogue... In Nazareth is where Jesus announced his messianic mission. Okay, there's a lot of important things that happen there, especially in the book of Luke. In, in Luke 4.18, Jesus goes into the synagogue in Nazareth and he says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So he's saying something new is starting that's going to affect people in entirely new ways. 
It's going to do that which this broken world cannot. It's going to provide what brokenness cannot. And so he's teaching. In verse 10, we back to our story now. He says, now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. 18 years. Crippled. Was this fair? No. Was she faithful to God? Yes, she's, and we're going to see somehow this woman finds her way into the synagogue, which is strange in itself, because in that time, women weren't typically allowed in the synagogue. So whether it was Jesus invited her in, allowed her in, she snuck in, we don't know, but she we see again true faith on display because she is getting herself to Jesus. And whatever obstacles she's facing, who knows how painful it might have been for her to walk? Who, I mean, she faced personal issues, cultural issues, religious issues, all of these obstacles in her way to keep her from getting to Jesus, and yet, here she is. In the presence of Jesus. She found her way there. She made it happen. That's what faith does. And says, when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. 18 years, this woman was oppressed with this disability. The brokenness of this world. We don't know what happened. We don't know how this happened. We don't know, but we know that for 18 years, the brokenness of this world unfairly landed on her and there was nothing she could do about it. Now, some of you know what I'm talking about because you've been there. When that oppression hits, there's a darkness to it. There is something, and you know, Job knew it. Job kept telling his friends, tell me what I did wrong and I'll repent. But I didn't do anything. Doesn't mean Job was perfect. No, but he knew, like, I just, I haven't, this just happened. That happens in this world sometimes. And we look at it and we want to look at God and say, God, where are you? Why is this happening? This isn't fair. Brokenness knows nothing about fair. It happens. And for 18 years, this woman has suffered unfairly. And within that, she's probably experienced religious, you know, not not persecution, but just prosecution. They probably tell her, well, you're getting what you deserve. You know, if you just repent, just like Job's friends, if you just repent, God would heal you. She's probably had charlatans come along and claim to be able to heal her, and and that disappointed and didn't work. And, you know, at this point, she's just lived with this brokenness. She has been oppressed by it. She has been afflicted. And I think that that is a biblical word that we actually need to understand again. There are people in this world that are just afflicted. And afflicted is when it goes beyond that normal world of, look, we all have a weight to bear. We all have things that we have to deal with. Life is hard. It's not fair. But sometimes people just get these heavy burdens laid on them that you look at it and you're like, that's not fair. Nobody deserves that. You know, and you look, and you're like, this is, you know, re- relatively speaking, this is a good person. Why are, th- why are they having to go through this? 
and we don't have the answer. The answer is that the world's broken, and brokenness is not fair. It's just not. And yes, we have an enemy that loves brokenness. He wants to see more of it. He wants to see God's system broken. He wants to see people living in brokenness. And he wants to afflict people wherever and whenever he can. And then we make it worse. And I'm not saying people deserve it, but I mean just when we try to fix brokenness with brokenness, we're just going to make it worse. And so, yes, as I said before, sometimes we just look out at the world and we're like, what a mess. What a mess. And so in this moment, somehow this broken, oppressed, afflicted woman found her way into synagogue to hear Jesus. This is faith. As I said, whether she snuck in or Jesus somehow convinced people to let her in, we don't know, but there she was. And this is special because people with physical deformities were expected to remain socially invisible, especially if they were women in this time. They genuinely believe if you're kind of this broke, God has done something and you don't matter and you need to get out of the way. Women in this culture rarely, if ever, approached rabbis. Nor did rabbis, as a rule, speak with women. Personal encounters between rabbis and women were consequently rare occurrences in Judaism. And yet, what happens in this instance? She finds her way to the synagogue. Jesus sees her and calls her over to himself. Don't miss what this means. He's doing this in front of all the leaders. He's doing this in front of all the religious people that have gotten it wrong. He is doing this in front of all the hypocrites that are there because he wants them to see it. And he says, you, come here. And he doesn't beat around the bush. He just says, woman, you are freed. And he lays his hands on her. And she goes, and suddenly she just stands up. Now, 18 years, people know, like, this woman's broken. Her body is broken. Everybody knows it. They know who she is. They know what this is. And then she stands up. And after that, it says she praises God. Now, I'm going to just take a guess that this was probably the loudest, most energetic praising of God that had ever happened in that synagogue. She was probably jumping up and down in the air as her body now worked for the first time in 18 years. She's rejoicing. And so Jesus, he saw her. He saw her condition. He called her to himself. And he freed her. Friends, what is that? That is a picture of salvation. He sees our condition. He calls us to himself. He frees us. And because of it, we praise him. It's that simple. And I love, what is her response? She praised God. That is the natural response to being freed by Jesus. If, if, if what Jesus does in your life does not lead you to praise God, you, you haven't been freed yet. You may have encountered some truth in religion. You may have even encountered some things that, hey, that made my life. But, 
But when a person is truly freed by the power of God, they're going to praise God. Because the oppression is lifted. The affliction is over. Even if the physical affliction doesn't change in this world, the more important thing is salvation. Even when that happens, the darkness is lifted. And so even in a broken state in the world, physically, we can still praise God spiritually. Because that is the natural response. And what this shows us, and please, I want everybody to hear this. Jesus meets us in our oppression. He didn't say, hey, woman, go get a doctor's report so that I know that there's nothing you can do about this. Go, I need you to do some things to prove how broken you are. Jesus saw it. And he wasn't offended by it. He didn't try to avoid it. He meets us in our distress. He doesn't shy away. He's not offended. He wants us to come to him for healing. And healing means change. This woman's life was now different. Where she had once probably had to beg for money and say, guess what? That life is over. She's now responsible for herself. She's going to have to figure out how to support herself. Now she's physically able. Her life is now different. So while she's freed from this oppression, she's now also responsible. You see, that's what God does for us. He moves us from the state of oppression and affliction to a state of freedom with responsibility. To have to live for him and work, with him, work for his kingdom, be sanctified, to be faithful to him. The two always go hand in hand. And so, this was a physical healing, but there are so many ways that we become oppressed by the brokenness of this world that we have to see that picture of Jesus calling us to ourselves and know that he means all oppression. This is just a physical example of the greater truth of the freedom that Jesus brings. Now, what does Jesus say about this in Matthew eleven twenty-seven 27 through 30? He says, all things have been handed over to me by my father. And no one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Verse 28, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The promise is there. He is the only one who fully understands the brokenness of this world, and has the power to do something about it. He's the only one. Nothing else in this world can free you the way Jesus will. Now, can we numb that pain? Oh, absolutely. We can numb it through any number of things, and that's what we do. Can we distract ourselves from the brokenness? Absolutely. And there's any number of ways we do that. But if you want to be freed from it, and when I say freed from it, I mean from the oppression of it, not, you know, you don't get saved and suddenly everything in your life works. It's not like winning the lottery. It's not about this world. It's being freed from the darkness of this oppression. But he is the only one that can free us from that darkness. 
the only one. And so this woman had been oppressed for 18 years and was healed in an instant. And that's what it'll do for us. That's what the gospel is. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news is that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. It's about eternal life. It is about our sin having separated us from God, having broken the world. And he says, I'm going to offer you a way out. This is your one and only way out, and that is faith in Jesus Christ, and in his death on the cross, and in his resurrection, you put your faith in him, what does he say? You will find rest. You know why? Because distracting ourselves or numbing ourselves, that just wears you out. It does. Sin may be fun for a season, but it always has consequences, right? The bill always comes due. We, We can't ignore it. Jesus says, I'll set you free. Why? Because he paid that price for us. His death on the cross paid that price. All we have to do is come to him, which leads us to the the final question of this message, and that is, where is my heart? Because we see in this story, the world quickly becomes divided into two sets of people. What is that? Those who rejoice in what he's doing and those who are angry at what he's doing. That's it. There's two groups of people here in the synagogue now. Those who rejoice in the truth and those who are angered by the truth. And there's no middle ground here. Verse 14, listen to what he says. It says, but the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. That just, that kills me all. I don't know how much. You've seen a true miracle of God and you're like, oh, I didn't... It'd been awesome if it wasn't today. It would have been so awesome if that was done yesterday or tomorrow, but today I'm offended. Talk about missing the forest for the trees. It says he was indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, and he said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed. You want a miracle? Do it tomorrow. And not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Now think about this. If you're standing there, you know, some rejoiced, some were angry. Those whose hearts valued life and wholeness rejoiced. Those who valued control and power were angry. The message of Jesus will either bring you life or upset you. If we are invested, remember I said this before, if we're invested in lies, the truth is offensive. If we're invested in truth, the truth will set you free. And we see that happen right here. This, this, should not, this should not be controversial, and yet it is. How many times have we all noticed that in life? You're like, this, you know, if you're, you're a Christian and you know the truth, you're like, this really shouldn't make people mad, and yet it is. It's making them furious. Same thing here. The message of Jesus, the truth of Jesus, will either set you free or it will enrage you. 
the one thing it will not allow is for us to remain neutral. There is no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. And so, we can see where the synagogue ruler's heart was based on his reaction and whom he addressed. Jesus healed this woman, and then the ruler, what did he do? Did he talk to Jesus about it? Did he seek understanding? Did he seek anything? No. He immediately talked to the people as one in authority, basically saying, you all better not follow this guy. He, it's like he steps in between Jesus and the people and says, you know what? There are six other days for this, and we don't need it right now. I mean, he's trying to take control of the situation. He's trying to gain alliances to himself, and that is a tactic that the enemy will always use. And we have to learn to recognize it. Those who are opposed to truth, one of the first things they will do is start to try to gain alliances and gain people to their side so they can shout down the other side. And that's exactly what this synagogue leader starts to do in this moment. He accuses Jesus to the crowd. He takes it public first. And yet Jesus, what does he do? He looks directly at the ruler and tells him, you hypocrite. He looks directly at him and responds to him without hesitation. Jesus shows that the ruler was willing to show more compassion to an animal than to a human being. You see, it was understood that, you know, again, this whole Sabbath idea of what is work and what isn't and and leading an animal and untying it could be considered work. But then they're like, oh, but wait a minute, you know, we got to take the animals. We can't just let them just go without water all day. Okay, so maybe we can make an exception. You can, you can untie your animals and take them to water so they don't, you know, die and suffer during the day. That would be cruel. And he brings that law up, and I love that. Jesus brings up that tradition that they had and understanding and says, really, you will uh, overlook people taking their animals to get water, but you can't see the goodness in a woman being healed on the Sabbath? That's why he calls him a hypocrite. He's like, you, you've missed the point. If you value life and you value wholeness, you should be rejoicing right now. And yet they could only be angry. And this is an interesting theme in the book of Luke. Praise or glorification of God is a signature characteristic in Luke. And in almost every instance, it comes from those who are afflicted or in social conditions place them on the margins or outside the margins of life for, for typical Jewish life. With only the exception, in the entire book of Luke, only the exception of when he was born and the angels are, are celebrating, everybody who openly praises God like this is always somebody who's on the outside. Isn't that an amazing thing? You see, it's like Luke is trying to show us something. Like, hey, God wants everyone. And God isn't leaving anyone out. Here, it's a woman who's oppressed physically, who, who's disabled, who praises God openly in the synagogue. There are so many cultural rules being broken here, we can't even count them. And Jesus set it up. He wanted it that way. We've got to stop allowing the world to tell us what's acceptable and what isn't. We've got to praise God. We've got to serve Him. 
We've got to walk with him. We've got to stop caring what the world thinks about us. Because you know why? It's never going to like us. Okay? As far as the world's concerned, we Christians will never be the cool kids. And we've got to stop trying. And I mean that. We've got to stop trying. It's the gospel that frees people, not cultural relevance. We just got to love Jesus. Just walk with him. Be faithful to him. Love each other. That will shine the light that will draw those who want truth. Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. Apparently they have no problem with his teaching until that teaching becomes reality. And he heals someone and all of a sudden they're mad. And Jesus is like, well, that doesn't make sense. You're just being hypocrites. And so our responses to God's offer of salvation and healing reveals our heart. Our responses to how other people receive God's grace in their life reveals our hearts. And we'll be in either one of the two camps. We are either in the camp of those that says they rejoiced at what happened and and, and praised God. The woman praised God. The people saw it. And they're like, this is amazing. She's just healed. And yes, God did something amazing today. And they refused to be shouted down. Or we'll be in the crowd that says, you know, it's just, no, I just disagree. I just don't think that that's how that's going to work. We're going to be in one of the two. Which one are you in? Are you looking, actively looking for God's work in life? Are you looking to be a part of God's work in life? Are you looking for that truth and that healing? Are you looking to bring that healing to other people's lives? That's where the power of God is found. And you just got to ask yourself, does, does Jesus bring you joy or offense? Does he bring you joy or does he bring you offense? And not that we have to be openly offended, but we know. When the truth hits a little too close to home and we want to draw back and be like, oh, yeah, yeah, they just need to worry about something else. They're not so perfect either. And when we start deflecting on the truth of Jesus, guess what? We're the ones with the problem. Now, grace covers that. That that, that doesn't mean God's mad at us or anything like that. But when we are truly set free by Jesus, when our faith is truly in the risen Savior, even the hard truths about ourselves we'll rejoice in because it sets us free. We'll be willing to accept it and say, okay, yeah, I'm... I'm broken. My understanding of myself is that I'm broken and I can accept that and that I need grace and that I need Jesus every single day because I'm not going to get better without him. I'll just make things worse. And we can rejoice in that and have joy in it because, hey, Jesus is the one that sets us free. It's not about being better. It's about walking with him because he paid that price And how he paid that price shows just how broken this world is. The fact that our salvation cost us the sinless Son of God going on a cross, being flogged with the cat of nine tails, having a crown of thorns on his head, being crucified on a cross, and dying the most painful death that a person could experience. That that was the cost of our salvation. It shows just how broken this world really is. But here's the good news. It also shows how much God cares for us. That Jesus was willing 
to go to the cross. Willing. He was not a victim. He went willingly because he loves you. Because he wants to heal you just like he did this woman. He wants you with him for all eternity. And today, we remember that. We are told in Scripture that we are to celebrate and remember the cost of our salvation. Over and over in the Old Testament, we see God repeats to the nation of Israel, you're alive because of who I am, not because of who you are. And it's a foreshadow of salvation that we are saved not because of the good things we've done, but because of the good thing he did at the cross. We are saved not because of what we can accomplish or will accomplish, but because of what he accomplished at the cross. We are saved not because of our own righteousness, but because he was righteous for us and his righteousness was given to us. And our sin was placed on him at the cross. And we remember this and we celebrate it because it keeps us focused and centered right where we should be in the gospel. And part of remembering that is taking the Lord's Supper, which reminds us of the body and the blood of Jesus at the cross. And so Jesus, the night before his crucifixion, took the bread and he said, this is my body, which shall be broken for you. And after he had taken the bread, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new covenant, which shall be given for you. He didn't say it would be taken for you. He said it would be given. Jesus gave every drop of his blood for your salvation. He allowed his body to be broken for you. And then on the third day, he was raised in triumph and ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he is there now until he returns. And together we proclaim that he died for us and that he is coming again one day by eating together of the bread. and drinking together of the cup. Father God, we thank you so much for this day, and God, we just come to you, and Lord, we do pray, Lord, that whoever in this, this congregation, there are people here that are genuinely afflicted. The pain is greater than we know. The suffering is greater than we know. But you know, God, and I pray that they find their freedom, their wholeness, their peace, their healing, and their joy in you. God, that you would comfort them in the way that only you can, and that your healing touch, just like with this woman, would come to them. God, those in here who don't know you in that way, that they've never experienced your healing touch and salvation, God, I pray that they give their lives to you right now. That they just simply confess that they are a sinner. That they have rebelled against you and ask you to come into their lives and give themselves to you. God, that your grace 
would lead them to that place of rebirth, of renewal, of freedom, of wholeness. God, those here today that, I, that, that have maybe wandered, they know you, but God, they, they've allowed the world to tell them what's true. They've allowed the world to, to lead them astray, or they've just wandered. God, I pray you bring them home. God, that they would once again just submit themselves to you and find themselves and their peace and their wholeness in you. God, it's in Jesus' holy name we pray together. Amen.